0: Exclusive podcast from Impact eighty nine FM
1: WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure.
0: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University. This
1: is
2: Impact Exposure. Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, the Health Ministry in Port au Prince has confirmed that the country's cholera outbreak has reached the Haitian capital, according to the BBC. Doctors are treating 73 people for the disease amid fears that it could spread across the quake hit city. Meanwhile, the Pan American Health Organization says it expects tens of thousands more Haitians to catch cholera in the next few years. The Health Ministry says so far over 580 people have died in the epidemic. In national news, President Barack Obama has admitted the U.S. must do a lot more work to improve ties with the Muslim world as he continues his Asian tour in Indonesia, according to the BBC. Obama says his efforts has been sustained but accepted that mistrust remained in the Islamic world. He said the U.S. would would expand cooperation on economic issues, security and climate change with Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim nation. In Michigan news, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says crews have finished cleanup at 50 sites in the Kalamazoo River system where a pipeline break spilled more than 800,000 gallons of oil, according to the Associated Press. The spill from an Enbridge Incorporated pipeline happened in July near Marshall. Much of the cleanup has been finished, but the EPA says more operation and maintenance will continue. And on exposure tonight, we will be... uh, Talking about the sale, the controversy over the sale of violent video games to minors. We'll also have an in-studio performance by Spartan Sewer, Spartan Spartan Sewer. Sorry, Hindi, the only Hindi fusion acapella group on campus. We'll also be talking about the new possibility of Zipcar on campus here in January on MSU's campus. But up first. We have um, a feature story that I put together, and it is a story about the MSU China Project at MSU. It is a collaborative venture that helps bridge political and social issues through music. Each fall, around two dozen students from both MSU's College of Music as well as from a music conservatory in China come together for a collaborative operatic performance. It's a program in which the Chinese come to MSU for a week to rehearse and perform and MSU students visit China to do the same. They sing American and Chinese folk songs as well as Italian arias. The project began five years ago with MSU voice professor Richard Fracker. He was singing at the Metropolitan Opera with Chinese vocal professor Hai Jing Fu. The two friends came up with the idea for students to develop professional relationships with singers
3: from different countries. You pretty much have to sing internationally if you're going to make a career.
2: Fracker says he wanted to give students the experience of working in the professional world of opera. Professional singers often have to perform in unfamiliar settings and circumstances. That means singing through jet lag and having to live out of a suitcase and eat unfamiliar
3: food. On a practical level, we wanted to give our students the opportunity uh, to feel what it was like to actually rehearse something, get off a plane, uh, and then have to perform it and make all of those sort of adjustments and get them used to the fact that you're not always going to sort of be in your ideal perfect situation.
2: Fracker says it's also a challenge for opera singers to perform with strangers from different cultures.
3: To be able to sort of sing a love duet with somebody that you've known for like zero days. We have to do that routinely in our in our business, and it, it sounds like it should be easy, and it's really not.
2: And that's exactly what MSU music performance junior Adrian Sanchez had to do with Chinese soprano Zhao Shi Li. The two vocalists sing longingly in a close embrace after having met a few days before. Only an inch from one another's face, the two sing a love duet from the Italian opera Don Giovanni. I
4: will always remember the uh, first run-through. And she wasn't exactly memorized, and so she was just reading off the music. And of course, uh, you know, Professor Fracker was there, and I had a stay off book, and so I just you know, assumed that he would want me to stay in character so I was just staring at her with this really seductive look and the whole time she just you know, really just really just singing the music, not looking at me, but the whole time I'm still looking at her and just singing this whole song
2: Many Chinese students from the MSU China project say they had a hard time showing emotion on stage Chinese baritone Yang Zhao says that's something deeply rooted in Chinese culture.
5: <laughs> Chinese people are relatively shy and self-conscious.
2: Chinese soprano Lo Chen says that was a cultural difference she had to overcome. Chinese students have great voices,
6: but in the acting aspect, they do not know how to use body language on stage. Since I've been here, I've learned a lot from the singing of American students, how they use their body and facial expressions
2: to create a character. But overall the students say the language barrier was the biggest challenge they had to tackle. Yet Sanchez says the music helped everyone overcome those differences.
4: It just brings two worlds together with music. Like it just shows how powerful music, the language of music can be. Like obviously I was singing with the Chinese person, but an Italian.
3: Virtually all the time we talk about how music is sort of a universal language. Professor Fracker says it's easy for students to relate through music. That that it touches our souls in, in, in such a, a deep and profound way that it connects people from very different places. In very different ways, and yet we all feel it sort of the same. It overcomes an awful lot of obstacles.
2: Music performance junior Brandon Manson, who sang in the MSU China Project this year, says breaking down those barriers was an important part of the experience.
5: Professor Fracker and and Hai Jing Fu, who's a very good friend of his, the Chinese professor, um, they both have made this trip happen. And I think that that's been their goal the whole time is to show that we can be united with with music and performing together and having a common experience of that, and that it doesn't matter what country you're from, you know.
2: Manson says the program made him realize how valuable it is to make those international connections.
5: There's definitely nationalist feeling about the entire place, and I think that they're trying to expose more of the country to a program like this where you have people working together from China and America or other western cultures and start to bring people together because you know in 20 years china may be the biggest superpower in the world and if we don't have a way to you know have good relations with each other i mean what's going to happen so this is a program that i think is very important to that and definitely shows the importance of how music can bring people together
2: and as the singers of the MSU China Project end their concert with the song Sing to Love from the opera Deflater Mouse, American and Chinese students stand arm-in-arm arm on stage as they wrap up another performance and another year of the collaborative venture. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emily
0: Fox. Now back to
2: Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is MSU law professor Kevin Saunders, and he's here to talk about his involvement with California's attempt to prohibit the sale of violent video games to minors. Welcome to the show.
7: Thank you. Happy to be here.
2: So, what is your stance on who should control children's access to violent video games?
7: I think parents should control children's access to violent video games, but I think parents need the help of the state, that as the law stands... Now, without a limiting statute, parents can try to keep their kids from getting these games, and it's, it's rental as well as sale, by the way, which means it can be a lot less money, but uh, it's really up to the vendor, the retailer, to decide whether or not the kid's going to get the games. So that even with the kind of laws that I've been in favor of, I always make an exception for parents. So if the state says the game's not suitable for children, but the parents want to buy the game for their child because they feel their child is particularly mature or not in Inclined toward violence, then I think that's fine. I think the parents should have that choice.
2: And can you talk about what you did specifically um, in relation to the the oral arguments that happened um, at the U.S. Supreme Court on November 2nd?
7: Well, I had a brief in the case. I wrote a a brief amicus Curiae, a friend of the court brief, uh, for a group called Common Sense Media uh, in in support of the state's position. So I was supporting the state of California, adding arguments to the arguments that they uh, offered to the court. I'd also had an earlier involvement in the statute itself. I testified before the California State Assembly Committee that drafted the statute a couple of years back.
2: And I understand you're one of the nation's leading scholars on the relationship between regulation of violent media and uh, First Amendment rights?
7: Yeah, that's the field I've been working in.
2: And um, can you talk about your involvement with that, and perhaps some of the books that you've
7: written? Well, it it started with a book titled Violence as Obscenity, uh, in which I argued that the First Amendment is on un- the obscenity exception to the First Amendment, which means that obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment, has been unreasonably limited to sexual material. And it actually came up in court. Uh, Justice Alito said that Justice Scalia seems to want to know what James Madison would have thought of video games. I actually have an article coming out shortly that the first sentence is, what would James Madison have thought of his uh, stepson's John's right to buy a violent video game? Uh, the, uh, Justice Scalia Said no. What I really want to know is what James Madison would have thought about violence, and said that we've had a long limitation, long-standing limitation on sexual material, the obscenity exception, but not a similar limitation on violence. But he's actually wrong in that, and that's the whole uh, focus of the Violence as Obscenity book, showing that the impact of obscene uh, of obscenity of being limited to sexual material actually came about in the Victorian era, and that if you look at the constitutionally relevant periods, it's broader than that, and could include violence.
2: Now, for our listeners that may not be familiar with what's going on in California right now, can you kind of take us back and and have us understand what California's law has tried to do so far in relation to the sale of violent video games and and what's been going on this past month?
7: Well, California, a couple of years back, passed a statute that prohibited the sale or rental of violent video games to minors Defined violent video games in the statute, and the statute was immediately enjoined. That is, the federal district court said you can't enforce the statute. declared it unconstitutional. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit agreed that it was unconstitutional, and it fell in line with really all of the cases in this area. Uh, We had won the first two cases at the trial court level uh, in Indianapolis and in St. Louis, and then lost them on appeal. And since then, every court that's ruled on this area, on this kind of statute, has ruled that it's unconstitutional. So I was really surprised when the court took the case, because the court usually only takes cases when there's a split among the lower courts. And to me, it indicated that there are probably four justices, because it takes four votes to take a case, who think the lower courts may be headed in the wrong direction. So it gave some hope to the possibility that the court will decide to uphold this kind of statute. And as one of my colleagues said, things certainly can't get any worse. So we may as well uh, argue this before the court. So uh, when the case is scheduled, briefs are due uh, over the summer. And I wrote a brief, as I said, on behalf of Common Sense Media uh, and uh, uh, in support of the state. Uh, And then the oral arguments were scheduled for the second and the state gets up they have a half an hour they start to get into an argument and then the justices kind of go after them right away and then the industry representative got up and the same was true for him
2: now, do you think um, that making a restriction um, on, the, on the sale of violent video games violates the First Amendment?
7: I don't think it should be seen as violating the First Amendment, and there's a couple of ways to argue that. One is that the First Amendment should not really speak to children all that strongly, and that was the focus of my second book, which was titled Saving Our Children from the First Amendment, that there just are not the same reasons for protecting children's access to speech, and I'm talking access to, not children saying something, but access to speech that there are for adults. Children don't vote. Children don't have the same kind of autonomy rights that adults have. We don't let them smoke. We don't let them drink. Uh, they are more subject to harm that can come from this, and there is signif- there are significant showings in terms of uh, the potential for harm, in terms of increased aggressiveness in ch- the part of children who play these games, and in fact, more recent science that shows that there's a difference in terms of brain functioning in the areas of the brain that have to do with inhibition and judgment on the part of these uh, uh, people who play these games uh, or are exposed to violent media more generally. So the different balance, the increased harm, and the less value of free expression for a child audience or for ch- uh, uh, simply mitigates against or speaks against uh, applying the same kind of First Amendment rights to children.
2: And do other countries have laws against the sale of violent video games?
7: Yes. Uh, it was interesting. I, I spent a uh, term visiting at Oxford uh, during my sabbatical, and a Swedish professor there gave me a case that had come down in Germany, and it had to do with a restriction on a violent video game. And the only thing that was being contested was the fact the game was manufactured in the United Kingdom, and it was putting a restraint on trade. Nobody even thought to contest the idea that you could limit uh, children's access to these games. And in fact, the German constitution, uh, they, have a, an equivalent to our First Amendment, it's Article 5 of their constitution, which in Section 1 protects expression. But Section 2 says you can put limits on that expression for certain reasons, and one of those is for the protection of children, or protection of youth is the language they use. Uh, and that's not an uncommon kind of, of exception in uh, other constitutions. So other countries are far more restrictive with regard to the kind of material that children would be given access to. Even Japan, by the way, because I've, I always was getting when I first started talking about violence as obscenity and the concerns about this, people would always throw Japan at me as an example that they have violent media and they don't have the children's crime. They started having it, and and Japan has prefecture after prefecture has started passing laws against the of, of it making this kind of material available to children.
2: Now, can you? I know you have some some knowledge about how. Children's brain functions in relation to perhaps exposure to um, violent media like video games. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
7: there's a, a long history of psychological studies that uh, have indicated an increase in aggressiveness on the part of children who are subjected to violent media, and a particular concern with regard to video games because of the participatory aspect of the game. It's not just watching the violence; it's in fact uh, virtual killing. Uh, the first-person shooter kinds of games. Uh, the, the The psychologists who study the, uh, study this think, feel that it's very strong now there are dissenters on this, but you know there are dissenters on everything uh the the uh Professional groups are on the side of California. The pediatricians think that this is a problem. The medical authorities, the the adolescent psychologists, they all believe that this is a problem, despite the fact that that there are, in fact, some dissenters. Uh, And of course, you can always pick up a problem with any particular study, but meta analysis that's been done, putting together hundreds of studies, uh, shows that there are these problems. And again, more recently, there's this developing area of, of brain science that there are parts of the brain that are under construction in puberty through adolescence that there is a that they call an overblooming of synapses the nerve connections in the part of the brain that has to do with judgment and in, in inhibition around the time of puberty and it the, those extra synapses are cut back during adolescence and environment appears to be a factor in what gets cut back and what doesn't and a study has shown that children who have a heavy exposure to media, to violent media, uh, the part of the brain that has to do with judgment and inhibition just doesn't function the same way that a normal child does. So it seems to be having even a physical impact on children.
2: Now, I've been listening to a few stories about this whole controversy about, you know, should violent video games be banned? Um, And they compare a lot of different outlets. So, you know, if you're... Under 17s, you need to show your ID if you go to a, a rated R movie, or you know let's talk about pornography or but but then there's also the video games and music and if you want to buy a video game or a cd that has explicit content in the music case you don't necessarily need to show an id so how how what do you think is the difference between movies or pornography and video games and and why do you think that you know video games doesn't at this point doesn't have that regulation like movies or pornography would.
7: Actually, it's a kind of common misperception in terms of movies that the R rating means you're not supposed to go, but there's no legal impact Okay, unless it's rated R for sexual content. We do have case law that says that you can limit children's access to sexual material, but if it's rated R for violence, the movie theater may enforce that regulation, but the law doesn't require them to enforce it. So video games are in fact the same as movies in that regard, that the will not limit them so far with regard to violent material.
2: So, so what do you think then, um, just comparing video games to pornography and what the difference is there?
7: Well, Justice Scalia's position was that there's a historical difference, but again, I argued in that, in that earlier book that uh, uh, the hist- history isn't there, that, that the early cases were not focused on sex. There are cases that are focused on sideshow kind of displays of a person as a horrible monster. It had nothing to do with sexual content. It was a very broad kind of statute, often addressing even heresy, uh, for example, and blasphemy. And as, as you get into the cases around the time of the Bill of Rights, there There are some that have to do with sexual content, but it's far broader than that. It's only in 1896, in a federal case, that the court said obscenity means sexual material. And in that same era, the states passed new statutes that continue to include limitations on violent material. One of those gets struck down in the mid-40s in a case called Winters versus New York uh, because the statute was vague. But the court specifically says in that case, don't take this as an implication that you can't regulate this kind of material if you write the statute properly.
2: And there's also been the argument um, that that children are exposed to violence more than they are, um, you know, sexual material. And and I've heard the argument, you know, in Hansel and Gretel, the, the witches burned, you know, and, and, and killed in, in, a, in a children's fairy tale. So children are exposed to it, but they're not exposed to sexual content. Um, do you think that there are, it's a different playing field?
7: Well, if some people argue it's a different playing field. And uh, this is an argument that... <clears throat> Justice Scalia offered as well, and Justice po- Judge Posner had offered an earlier case. And it is true that there has been violence in uh, uh, fairy tales, but we're talking a whole different level. I mean, we're not talking about somebody decapitating a child with a shovel uh, and then setting the body on fire. Uh, We're talking very fantasy that, that, you know, a witch throwing somebody in an oven. Children may be somewhat bothered by that, but they also seem to like those kinds of stories. It just does not have the same impact, and it particularly doesn't have the same impact, according to the psychologists, of somebody sitting there actually shooting at the uh, the victims on the screen or actually causing the decapitation or whatever other uh, uh, harm is being brought about. I mean, the kind of games that we're playing now, the children are playing now, are the kind of games that the military used less violent in terms of decapitations and that sort of thing. But the first-person shooter games, same kind of games the military used to increase the willingness of soldiers to fire on the enemy uh, to dramatically. Uh, and we're letting children do it without the emphasis on discipline uh, and following orders that we try to t- they would try to teach in the military.
2: Well, in the studio I have MSC Law Professor Kevin Saunders, and he's here to talk about his involvement with the California's attempt to, pro- to prohibit the sale of violent video games to minors. Well, I look forward to see what happens with this case. Um, Thank and, you. I do, too. And we'll g- keep in touch.
7: Thanks.
0: You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure.
1: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
0: Monday nights from 8 till 10, The Asian Invasion brings you the music from The Rising Sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan,
3: and China.
1: Only on Impact 89FM.
3: An ordinary day. An ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids. And they were doing nothing. When suddenly...
0: That's a personal foul. Inactive activity on a sunny day.
3: Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Let's play. And play they did. There was running and jumping and laziness was crushed. Hey kids don't get a lazy penalty. Go online to
8: smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
4: Attention shoppers if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you, and have a good day.
0: Small Step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov.
9: A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
0: Now back to Impact
2: Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Spartan Sir. It is uh, the one and only Hindi Acapella Fusion group on campus. Welcome to the show, everyone! Thanks! Thanks. So I guess we'll start off and say, what is, I guess, uh, Hindi Acapella Fusion? What does that mean?
10: Um, well, basically, we sing in Hindi and English, and there's nobody else on campus that does that, Obviously. Um, a lot of other campuses have groups like this, so we thought that we should start one here because we all love to sing,
2: and it's our passion. And and is that hard to fuse Indian music and American music together?
6: You would think so, but a lot of the songs, they kind of mesh well together, so we create mashups. I mean, we sing in just Hindi and in just English, but a lot of songs um, you can actually put together really easily and create a mashup.
10: And, and how long have you guys been around for? Um, since fall of last year. But we just started doing everything more
2: like this year. So, as in performing and things like yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I guess let's start off by having you guys sing a little bit for us so we get a general idea of what <laughs> Hindi Fusion music is.
10: Awesome. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
9: Mmm
6: Come, some a good perchup. a
1: good
10: perchup. Come, some Come, some a
2: And this is part Spartan sewer. Sir, sorry, not sewer, in the studio. Thank you so much for performing for us. Um, so I guess, from my perspective, I heard more Indian music than American music in that song. Is this? Do you think this sample is is a good representation of the type of music that you guys perform? Um, well, this was just in
10: Hindi, but we do both. But we're not really quite done with this song yet, so we didn't want to perform right, right. the whole thing, but
2: you'll hear in the future more so, <laughs> so is it kind of like, I'll hear this song and then it'll go into a popular music song that I yeah, know? like a Chris Brown song or something like that. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And do you know of, of any other groups that are similar to this like at other universities?
6: Yeah, we actually have a lot of friends at the U of M one. Their name is Maze Mirchi, and they've been really helpful in helping us figure things out, you know, as we're trying to become more known on campus and things like that. But there's a lot of universities around the country that are similar to what we are, that have been around much longer than we have.
2: So do, does everyone in the group have experience with Indian music and, and are strongly influenced by that?
6: No, actually, um, for for us, half of us are trained in Hindi and in English, and some of us are, or some of us are trained in Hindi, and then some of us are more um, we see more of the English music, so we help each other a lot, a lot in trying to
2: figure out how everything's going to go together and what we're going to do with that. And and why do you think it's important, or why do you what do you think that uh, a Hindi fusion group can bring to MSU's campus? Culture, yeah, hundred percent. <laughs> yeah, we're
6: all really close and t- closely tied to our roots, and so this is a really good outlet for us to kind of bring both of our worlds together and show people that you know we're still really close to being Indian and really involved in that, but we're still also really modern and fun. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so is everyone here from India or their family is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. i yes. <laughs>
10: Okay. But we're open to everybody. It was just a coincidence that everybody's
2: <laughs> Indian. And um, so I guess, how did, how did this form then? How did you recruit people to be in this group? Um, we had auditions. Okay, just open auditions. Mm-hmm.
6: Yep. It just happened that we're all really close, and we all mesh incredibly well, and we're a family now, and yeah. we got really lucky.
2: So we have quite a few acapella groups on campus, um, probably mm-hmm. you know five or five or so, um, and they're all very traditional um, acapella groups. But I've heard of acapella groups that only whistle or you know things like that <laughs> um, at other universities. Um, so when I hear your sound, it's very very different. Um, than the type of repertoire that you hear from most of the most of the acapella groups, do you guys feel like outsiders to the acapella community, or is this kind of your stamp and your um, individual flavor that you want to bring to it and you in you're embracing that?
6: Yeah, absolutely I think that this is it's kind of fun to be the only people on campus that can you know that do this, and we're still gonna work to get more involved in acapella group like and with the other acapella groups like Acapalooza that happened um, in October, we hope to do that in the fall next year. But I think it's cool that, you know, this is kind of our thing. So it makes us a little different.
2: And so, while the example that you sang here tonight was just Hindi, um, why did you decide not to just have a Hindi acapella group, but to fuse the, the American music in there as well?
10: Um, well, not all of us are trained in Hindi, so a lot of us don't actually know how to pronounce stuff in Hindi, and we just thought it would be more like pleasing to
2: like people on campus if it was both. Okay. And and how do you how do you get a lot of your songs? Just from songs that you learned growing up?
6: Yeah, absolutely I mean we all watch Indian movies and <laughs> so it's we kind of throw out ideas, we're constantly emailing each other back and forth, like song ideas and if we all agree on a song then we see what we can mash up with it or if we want to leave it alone and so yeah, just
2: lots of movies. <laughs> So, you guys are a pretty new group. Um, what are your hopes for the future, and are there any shows that people can look, um, look out for?
6: Hopefully, we're going to have shows coming up. Yeah. But we hope that in the spring we'll have our own kind of headlining concert. concert. Um, but yeah, check, you yeah. know, look out for us.
2: And you guys have a Facebook group? We yes, do. We do. Okay. Anywhere else where people can look for more information? Uh, no, I think that nope. Facebook is pretty much all, <laughs> all right. right so it's, it's Spartan. It's Spartan Sur S U R, and that is the Hindi acapella fusion group, the one and only on MSU's campus. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. <laughs> Thank you for Thank having you.
0: us. You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
0: Now, back to
2: Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. On Friday, MSU announced its teaming up with Zipcar, a worldwide car-sharing service. Uh, MSU student advocate Josh Croft is in the studio to talk about this new option. Welcome to the show.
11: Hi, Emily. How are you?
2: So what is Zipcar, for those that may not be familiar?
11: Well, essentially what Zipcar is, is it is a um, car-sharing program and um, members of this program essentially reserve vehicles online um, and uh, they're able to go to locations that are convenient to them and generally if they have a membership they can um, unlock the vehicles after they've reserved them with either their um, cell phone application or um, they get a card in the mail that um, they basically put on the window and the doors unlock so it 's an electronic card that unlocks the the doors of the car, and they just hop in and drive the car away and everything is covered up to one hundred and eighty miles as well um, gas insurance everything it 's just very it 's a very convenient package
2: and I know that you 've been a part of the process to bring zipcar to msu 's campus how long is when did that process start
11: Well, that process actually started um almost i think it 's probably been close to a year in the making so it, it's been a long process maybe closer to like nine months but it, it's been a long journey i think that they definitely started thinking about a car sharing program oh, definitely about a year ago so
2: and what do you think is the benefit of having a car sharing program
11: you know i think the real benefit um, will be um, hopefully people will realize that this option is available those that don't necessarily need their own personal vehicle And then hopefully they'll leave those vehicles at home and realize that this is another one of the options along with, you know, the other options available on campus, such as CATA and um, the bus and also walking and biking. But hopefully this is just another option that they have to utilize so that they don't necessarily need to own their own personal car, which takes up an enormous amount of space on campus.
2: And where are these cars going to be parked for people to be able to use and how can people track them down?
11: Well that is definitely the question of the hour right now. <laughs> but um as far as the tracking of the cars go, um it, once you log on to their website or um log in using your phone, um it it shows you exactly where the cars are and what types of cars are available to you for and actually the specific times that they're available. So it's so it's pretty intuitive and it's not really difficult to locate these they'll definitely be located in strategic locations, high traffic, you know, visual traffic areas because we, we we want people to see them. So
2: so are you, i know parking's definitely an issue on MSU's campus. So if people get these zip cars, are they going to have nice preferential treatment as to where they park it or is you know, this is this mostly you see it as an, as people going off campus and using it for let's say getting groceries or something like that?
11: Right. I I I believe that that is the hope for it. Um, that was actually a concern that was brought up. We didn't want people to utilize these vehicles for in between classes, and I I really don't think um, that this would be something that people would use between classes because it's really something you want to get a group of friends in on because it's not you know it's not just something that you know is just very very cheap you know it's it's not you know so you you definitely wouldn't just do it and take it to class.
2: And how do, how do you envision people using this?
11: Um, the way that I personally envision people using it is to get to faraway places that um, maybe they wouldn't necessarily be able to get to on the catabus, or maybe it wouldn't be convenient for them if they have a lot of packages with them or something like that. If they want to go to the grocery store, you know, pick up a uh, larger item, say dorm organizing stuff, or just anything that you pick up at Meijer or Target, something that you really want to not carry on the bus.
2: And what other, um, let's say, college towns or even larger cities um, have utilized the Zipcar program, and what has the feedback been so
11: far? Well, University of Michigan is is the biggest one in Michigan, obviously, but then there are a few others around the state. But the feedback that we've been receiving from U of M is, is very positive. So their program has been very successful, highly utilized. Um, actually, a while back, I mean, you can even see their cars, people from U of M commuting to our campus to meet with people in the zip cars so it's actually a pretty good example of how they're utilizing the cars it's it's pretty intuitive
2: and and what do the zip cars look like are they going to have a big sign on the side that says zip car on it so people can identify that's what that is what type of cars are they and what are they going to look like how are they going to be identifiable
11: well, um, you'll definitely know that they're a Zipcar. They're going to have their own designated spots, from what I understand, and they'll definitely have the logo on the side. And the cars will likely be you know, fuel-efficient and environmentally friendly because we're really looking to... The, the whole point behind this, this program is to lower the environmental impact on campus. So they're going to likely be smaller vehicles, fuel-efficient vehicles. You might see a few hybrids in there. Um, but uh, you'll probably see a lot of um, domestic vehicles, I would imagine. Um, I, I guess we don't really know exactly which vehicles we're getting, but I know that's that's sort of a, the thing that happens on campus.
2: And, and you guys are expecting to start off with around six cars?
11: Yeah, six cars.
2: And my understanding is um, some have said that for every zip car, every single zip car, Fifteen cars are expected to be taken off the road. How? How is that? How can people speculate that? Is that proven?
11: Um, I think that actually is a reasonable number. When I was researching, I saw numbers as high as like, you know, twenty-five to as low as like three or something like that. But I think that um, the research that we finally did come up with the fifteen cars is pretty accurate, and I think that they are able to to come up with those numbers just by feedback from users and the scheduling systems that they have because obviously they try to maximize how many people are in these cars at what times so um so yeah i think i think it's going to be pretty successful
2: so is i'm assuming they they'll take cars off campus because people are going to be carpooling more with these vehicles is that correct
11: that would be the hope or they're going to take more cars off campus because people feel like they have another option so they wouldn't necessarily need to bring their own cars and it really the program really the way that it's structured it really encourages you to have more than one person in the vehicle when you're when you're using it
2: and um zip cars will come to campus as soon as january or in january
11: um january yes the the six cars should be located throughout campus in january so
2: and where can people go for more information about the Zipcar program here at Michigan State University?
11: Well, if more people are interested, um, right now I actually looked online to see if they could go and find Michigan State University. Right now the website does not currently say that you know, um, Zip, Zipcar is coming to MSU, but uh, soon MSU will have their own Zipcar um, website, and I'm sure that there's going to be some information on MSU's website about Zipcar as well, so look out for that.
2: Well, in the studio I have Josh Croft. He is an MSU student advocate for the Zipcar program. who has been fighting for this for the past year, and it was announced Friday that, indeed, Zipcar will come to MSU's campus in January. Thank you so much for joining us, Josh Croft.
0: Thank you. You're listening to
1: Impact Exposure.
5: We've just received word of an invasion. Speak
0: quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We've just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. The Impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian Invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe tapping is music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian
10: Invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on... I- the
1: Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Prime Time, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
8: Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area.
10: Only on
4: Impact Time.
2: Now back to Impact Exposure. your host Emily Fox and in the studio is Professor Brian Ritchie and he is here to talk about the green economy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So what does green economy mean?
8: Well, it, it, it could mean a couple of things. Uh, it can mean the green economy can be the way that we're doing things that are enhancing our environment from everything from carbon emissions to resources that we use. But I think specifically for this region and the, and the way that it's more beneficially used for us is, is the emerging green economy in terms of energy, in terms of products, chemicals, those things that are coming from bio-based products.
2: And and I know that you're also involved um, in the bio uh, the office of bio-based technology here at MSU, right? Um, and they they talk about the bioeconomy. So is bioeconomy the same thing as green economy?
8: I think the green economy is a much broader term. The bioeconomy, the way that we look at this is is that there are a number of new opportunities now to create products from bio-based materials that we've been creating from fossil-based materials for a long period of time. And if you know your chemistry, you know that fossil-based products are really just plant material that has been changed over millions of years. What we're being able to do now through our chemistry is be able to make those same products out of new bio-based materials. So everything from leaves and woody, you know, Wood, uh, woody products, grasses, um, corn stovers, and farm residues, uh, even municipal waste and other things like that have the ability to be taken and used for these new green products.
2: Now, you're a professor <coughs> of international relations. You're also the associate director of the Office of Bio-Based Technology, as well as the co-director of the Michigan Center for Innovation and Economic Prosperity. Now, uh-huh. how do those all interconnect or relate?
8: Actually, I think, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, I'm a political economist by training, and I'm actually an entrepreneur as well, and have spent time building new businesses. Um, you know, there have often been these big economic transitions that have created lots of wealth for an economy. In fact, here in Michigan, we know this well. We got on the transportation change and made a lot of money in automobiles. In fact, we were some of the wealthiest people in the world for a long period of time. But whether that change is industrialization, whether it's transportation, whether it's electronics, software, all of these things have created a tremendous amount of wealth. What we're now seeing is a transition in our energy. We're moving away from fossil-based energy to more bio-based energy. And there's a lot of debates here. Do we go to electricity? Do we go to biofuels do we go to you know um, hydrogen or even nuclear there's a lot of different options but there's a lot of value to be created in those areas and here in michigan luckily some may say we're well positioned in this bioeconomy we we know how to grow things we have universities that know how to trans uh, transition those things into useful products and so we're facing a tremendous opportunity to take these new materials and make products that we use on a daily basis that will generate lots of wealth. So for me, that nexus of new industrial opportunity and entrepreneurship and business come together nicely at this point.
2: Now, speaking of entrepreneurship, um, can you talk a little bit about um, MSU ENet?
8: Sure. Um, just recently, we've gotten together and created the entrepreneurship network, which is a combination of all of the resources and assets on the MSU campus that are that are directed towards business creation and entrepreneurship and startup. And there's quite a bit. Everything from you know MSU Technologies, uh, the Product Center, the Center for Innovation and Economic Prosperity, the Center for Entrepreneurship. Um, there's lots of people, professors, resources available to help people get started. What we wanted to do was just organize all of those, make them available to students, to faculty, and even to community members that might want to start a venture. And they can come to the ENET, and the ENET will help move them around that network and get the things that they need at the time that they need it.
2: And, and along with that, is is there a class, um, I, I believe that's called the Venture Creation and innovated Mindset class? Right. And that's specifically related to MSU ENET?
8: That's right. What we wanted to do there was, again, bring these resources together and create an educational opportunity for students and non-students. Uh, we are, this is our first year we're doing this. We have about 40 students in the class. About 10 of those are um, community members that are taking the class not for credit. Um, the class is the entryway to a certificate in entrepreneurship that a student can get um, from MSU that says, I know how to do entrepreneurship. I've gone through this. I understand how entrepreneurs think. I've done a project around entrepreneurship, and I have a desire to maybe start my own organization. It might be a not-for-profit. It might be a company. It might even be a movement of some sort, but we try to help them get prepared to be an entrepreneur.
2: And do you think more so now there is a need for entrepreneurs in Michigan?
8: I, I think that's also a great question. If we look historically, we can see that Michigan has al- always produced entrepreneurs. I mean, think of Henry Ford. What a tremendous entrepreneur. Um, Edison. If you, there's a lot of people, and we've done entrepreneurship here really well. We've just kind of gotten away from it. It's almost time we're saying, let's go back to the future. Let's get back to our roots as an entrepreneurial community that creates value and new opportunities.
2: And and I know you're helping create that entrepreneur community through MSU E net and things like that, but how else can Michigan help create, um, an entrepreneur mindset or, or community?
8: Another great question. We, uh, we need to make sure that we create the institutional environment that supports entrepreneurship. And if you think about entrepreneurship generally, the, its characteristics are you have to be able to fail. You have to be able to take a risk. You have to be able to, uh, have some institution that will support you during that period of time. So if you think about policies, well, there, you, we ought not to punish an effort to try. You know, if we're going to try and fail, someone ought not to lose their house, for instance. Um, We ought to have resources available. Entrepreneurship is a very resource-hungry enterprise. Um, We've got to have people who are willing to invest. We have a lot of money in this community that stays locked up, that doesn't get utilized in productive ways. So we need to think about ways to encourage new kinds of behavior um, that will facilitate entrepreneurship.
2: And can you talk a little bit about the hatch?
8: Sure. Uh, again, some of the movement that the university is making towards entrepreneurship is to provide opportunities for students to test their ideas. Kind of exactly what I was talking about, a safe area where you can fail quickly. You can find out quickly whether this idea has any merit. So the university has invested almost $100,000 to create a space where undergraduates can come and practice their new ideas. Now, the neat thing about this as well is we've secured funding from the community. in, a, in a, uh it's really an endowment that will allow us to put in 25 to $7,500 per student for them to actually go out and make prototypes, do proof of concepts, test their product out in uh, laboratory space, little things they might need to move that forward. So they have the place to do it. They have the money to do it. Now we've taken away all the reasons not to do it.
2: And do you know of um, any projects that people, where people have utilized um, the Hatch?
8: Just getting started. In okay. fact, it's being built right now. Uh, we hope to have it up and running here in the next few months uh, and available for undergraduate students to use i
2: And can you talk about Spotlight Michigan?
8: Yep. Spotlight Michigan is also connected to this. Uh, This is a class that's been going on for the last five years in which we've handpicked a group of students and basically given them a policy question. You had asked, you know, what should we do as a community to facilitate entrepreneurship? We've been asking these students that same question, and they've come back with various answers. Things like, well, we have to change our infrastructure, our funding availability. We have to create ways to keep and attract talent. Um, We have to figure out what companies need and make sure that the universities are producing the talent that the companies need. Um, So every year they go out and do this comparative research to try to understand how to increase our entrepreneurial capacity in this area.
2: Now you've also um, done some work in Southeast Asia, I understand? Yes. And what did you do there?
8: Well, I've, you know, so I'm kind of a weird academic. I spent the first 10 years of my career in the computer industry, and I owned my own company twice as an entrepreneur, uh, once very successfully, once very unsuccessfully, and I think I learned more from the failure than I did from the success. Uh, but in my, the end of my career there, I was working for Novell, um, which is a computer um, networking company, and uh, took a buyout, went back and got my Ph.D. I'd gotten my MBA beforehand, but all of my work before had been done in Southeast Asia. I was interested in how economies, how whole countries upgrade, technologically. But while I was doing that work in Southeast Asia, I realized that places like Singapore and Thailand and Malaysia were undergoing rapid technological change and upgrading. And the question came up from a colleague, not even from myself, how would I apply what I'm learning in Southeast Asia to Michigan? And to be honest, I'd never thought about it. I'm not from Michigan. I didn't really care what was happening in Michigan. Um, and all my work had been done in Asia. But as I on the plane ride home, as I thought about this, I thought, what a great test um, opportunity. Here Michigan is having been very entrepreneurial, very growth-oriented before, stagnating now, could we get back to that? And so my whole thing was, could we apply some of the things that we learned in these other regions to Michigan, and would that help us kind of get back on track?
2: And what kind of things do you think that have you been able to apply or some things that you'd like to apply that's happening over there?
8: Well, some of the great things that you see in places like Singapore and, you know, a lot of people argue, well, nothing you learn in Singapore can be applied here because they have a different government and different institutions. Fair enough to some degree. Um, But they've also made some very interesting um, observations. (laughs) Kind of funny, but to begin with, Singapore felt like they had no innovation because nobody in Singapore owned a garage. The, the myth is, right, you think about Apple Computer, you think about Microsoft, that these were all formed in someone's garage, right? So they went out and rented garage space for all of their people. They weren't even connected to their homes, but it was kind of a place they could go to innovate. And interestingly enough, that did matter to some degree. There needed to be a place, a space where people could go and work on their stuff. Then there was the obvious that resources needed to be applied, and you couldn't say, well, I'm not going to apply this resource if there's any opportunity of failure, right? And so sometimes we get over-analytical about what's going to work, and not work without just trying things. So they allocated a billion dollars and they said, we'll put a million dollars on a thousand ideas. Uh, you know, that's the billion dollars. And they said, let's just see what sticks. We'll throw it all against the wall. And it turns out a lot stuck. Um, and so, you know, these the, the opportunity to just try new ideas, new things becomes very critical in our growth and our progression.
2: So with all of your, your varied experience here at MSU, as I mentioned before, um, I'm talking to MSU Professor Brian Ritchie. He's a professor um, of international relations as well as he's also involved in the Office of Bio-Based Technology as well as the Michigan Center for Innovation and Economic Prosperity. So with, with your varied expertise, um, what are some things that you're really excited that MSU is doing and what type of things would you like to see MSU involved in in the future?
8: Well, I, I think it starts from the top down. Um, you know, President Simon is very focused on economic development and entrepreneurship and, and has, has realized that the le- part of the land-grant mission of this university has always been to extend what we learn to the community. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a large focus on this at this point. Faculty are starting to understand that the, their research, their innovation, might be commercializable. We've made investments from our foundation into a wholly owned subsidiary company called MBI, whose sole focus is to de-risk and scale up new technologies. Um, we've invested in resources like the Hatch, um, MSU Technologies, which licenses our technologies. We put a face on the university called Business Connect, which makes it easy for companies to partner with the university. Um, just lots of really exciting things going on. The E-Net, the entrepreneurship network that takes all these centers, co- combines them, together. We have now um, academic opportunities for students, funding for students. Um, I, I'm really excited about the direction the university is headed.
2: And in on a broader scale, besides just MSU, um, what are you, with your um, involvement in um, the bio based technology and, and economy. Um, what do you hope is the future of, of um, Michigan's economy?
8: Well, I really see us at a crossroads, Emily. I think that what we have is a real opportunity to engage ourselves in an emerging industry um, that's going to tr- create tremendous wealth. Uh, if you think we spend as a country almost $700 billion a year on petroleum alone, you know, if you think about us capturing that value locally, in, in some ways it would transition the very way that we live. It would push value back into our rural communities. It would make it so those were desirable places to live and work. It would mean that not everybody migrated to the cities. Um, so it would then redistribute wealth among our population. It would create value that we would keep at home um our jobs that it would produce i think michigan has the opportunity to right at the crossroads of that industry to play a significant role just like we did with the automobile industry it's an opportunity for us to really capitalize on something that could produce wealth here for many generations to come
2: well for our listeners i'm talking with msc professor brian ritchie thank you so much for joining us tonight. you're
8: welcome happy to be here you're listening to
2: impact exposure,
1: impact exposure. Hey, what floor are you going to?
2: Oh, uh, three. Thanks. Hey, didn't we, uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to,
0: <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh... Would you ever want to, um... I was wondering if you... if I could stick my
2: finger in your eye.
1: What? No. Oh,
2: I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. that's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you
0: know, just stick my finger uh. in your eye. Is that weird? No!
10: Don't touch me! What's wrong with you? Oh.
0: Sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash cleanhands. Impact
3: 89FM
9: for the michigan storytelling segment you know you're in michigan when a non-resident weasels its way into becoming the state's mascot although the wolverine state has been one of michigan's nicknames since the 1830s no one knows why for certain wolverines aren't indigenous to the state in fact no one can remember the last time they saw one outside of a zoo until february 2004 that is when a single male was sighted roaming through Ubley in Huron County, near the top of Michigan's thumb. Described as bulky and bear-like, the wolverine resembles a badger, but it's technically a member of the weasel family. Carnivorous wolverines, though nasty and gluttonous, are neither hunters nor fighters, small prey excluded, and generally feed off any and all leftovers from other wildlife. Perhaps that's the reason Ohio is thought to be responsible for our wolverine nickname. During a dispute over Toledo around 1835, Ohioans described Michiganians to be as bloodthirsty for land as this animal is for food. Toledo went to Ohio, ultimately making us victorious. Native Americans may also have contributed to our moniker. When expressing their displeasure in the loss of their land, they compared greedy settlers to wolverines. In the 1920s, the University of Michigan adopted the wolverine as its official mascot, and at the request of then-coach Fielding Yost, two caged wolverines were carried in by the players before each football game. Quickly growing in size and veracity, the pair was soon retired to a local zoo. What most people don't realize is that Michigan State had the nickname long before their arch-rival U of M. From 1900 to 1974, MSU's yearbook was called the Wolverine, but in 1975, they relinquished the title. Today, aptly named for the river running through campus, the Spartans' annual is now known as Red Cedar Log. I'm Colleen Burkar for the Michigan Storytelling segment.